arguments, I guess my, my first question would be, do you think design arguments are sort of in vogue right now? They seem to be the most prevalent at present and maybe the most even influential at present. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think of those uh, of the three families of arguments, I think they have the best conversionary value in the sense that if I'm trying to convince an atheist to be a theist, Mm-hmm. I think you have a much, much, much better chance with the, with design arguments than you the other two. Sure. Because I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was what uh, got um, uh, Anthony flew. Is that correct? Towards, uh, the, towards the end of his life, he was kind of yeah, more persuaded was, on that front? Uh, that That's the rumor. Yeah, the rumor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the rumor. So, so, so the book that's like listed as by Anthony flew, flew yeah. Uh, with the, it's 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 the theist who's writing all the work there, so maybe maybe <laughs> if that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know guys like uh, Stephen Meyer. He just recently came out with his uh, new book. I think it's called uh, "The Return of the God Hypothesis." Um, have you seen that at all? I don't know if you've read it, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you. I don't. I don't. I don't think I've read that one. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it just it just came out. I believe it's like brand new. Um, but uh, he's a He's a popularizer, of course, of intelligent design. And then you've got like William Dembski and Michael Behe. Um, do you think, I mean, so Stephen Meyer, I'd say, is probably the most prolific. Uh, do you think any of the stuff that he comes out with is probably going to fall, you know, to the same general arguments you uh, bring up in the section? Uh, let me, so I, I will answer that, but let me pump the brakes really hard there. Sure. Uh, there's... Uh, for for the atheist listeners out there, there's a world of difference between intelligent design mm-hmm. and supporter of the design argument. Okay. Uh, I yeah. think I think that the latter is much 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 more intellectually respected and respectable. Okay. Uh, and so I don't I don't want to I don't want the listeners to confuse the two and maybe think that I'm dismissing one as severely as the other. Fair, um, fair having said that, uh, of course, the related intelligent design is uh, basically one of those local local design arguments. Right. Um, so the funny thing about Behe Dembski Meyer. Uh, is they have these very, very, very obviously testable and tested hypotheses that just never come into fruition. Mm-hmm. Or if they do, they come in the really bad way. So, uh, which, which, first of all, kudos to them for putting forward a hypothesis that's testable within the sciences that, that you should expect if there's a God there. But yeah. Sure, sure. So you have uh, one of them saying, well, look, the flagellum here on this dinoflagellate is irreducible. Therefore, there's an alternative to Darwinism tells the New Jersey Supreme Court about this. But of course, it has been reduced. Uh, there's lots and lots of scientific papers that show exactly how this is reducible using uh, simple evolutionary mechanisms that we know there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so you have this more general claim that, well, uh, there are irreducible hypotheses. Uh, what? I'm sorry. Uh, irreducible complexities <laughs> that are... Uh, you know, basically these advanced complex structures that uh, that the sciences, uh, that evolution cannot explain, and therefore that evolution as the whole story must be flawed. Uh, I'm sure you've heard those before, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, uh, well, now you're in a dilemma because, well, none has ever been found. That, and if we're simple Bayesians about this, that should be 
shocking and surprising given that lots of people are looking for them. And if you ever find one, you're going to become an instant millionaire due to various uh, scholarships and funds that have been set up to reward them. And lots of people have looked for what would be the largest scientific breakthrough and the largest news story in the history of mankind. And yet none has ever been found. That should be really shocking given that, given that there are such things, but of course expected uh, if there are not such things. Right. And so my, my general view on intelligent design is, well, kudos for sticking your neck out a bit and, and putting a testable hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But trust me, you'll, you'll hear about it from the, scientific from the scientific community if one of those hypotheses is ever confirmed or uh, at least not rapidly and easily disproven. So that's been my previous experience. Uh, I would kind of expect uh, the new books to basically be more of the same. Uh, but maybe not. Uh, again, haven't read it, so I won't pretend otherwise. There, um, well, there, there's there, there's one other thing that that I I really kind of kind of hate to uh, add in here because I don't I don't usually like to get personal, but in this particular debate, there there there's sneaky stuff going on, mm -hmm. and there's very deliberately sneaky stuff going on um, in uh, in in my philosophy compass atheism article uh i gave a definition of irreducible complexity and to to talk about this point and my anonymous reviewer said well wait a minute that's not the definition of irreducible complexity that be he offers and so and 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 i looked it up and he has two very distinct definitions and they're used rather sneakily so one definition is a single system which is composed of several interacting parts that contribute to the basic function and where the removal of any one part causes the system to effectively cease functioning. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other one is an irreducibly complex evolutionary pathway uh, containing, that contains one or more unselected steps. Mm -hmm. The degree of irreducible complexity is the number of unselected steps. So one of those is from Darwin's Black Box, one is from a response to critics of Darwin's Black Box. Mm -hmm. Notice that D1 is compatible with evolutionary biology and D2 is not. Uh -huh. And you get intelligent design people doing this really sneaky thing. They go up and ask a biologist, hey, are there irreducible complexities? And they'll give them the D1 definition. Mm -hmm. And the biologist says, well, of course. And then they switch to the D2 definition and says, look, a biologist said, just said that, the, that evolution isn't the whole story. Right. And, and so somewhere I saw, I think it might have been a Dennett article, where he compares Behe and Dembski as just kind of these stingrays on the bottom of the water churning up muck and just kind of trying to make things look a lot less clear. And and again, I, I don't like to get personal, but there's a genuine worry that there's something just not uh, not on the academic up and up there. And that so I always have to look at the uh, intelligent design stuff with a much higher degree of scrutiny than I would say, you know, work by Swinburne or Craig or anything like that. Right, right. So that's like that, the intelligence design, like you said, is kind of relegated to the local design argument uh, tradition. Um, but there's these more cosmic design uh, arguments that kind of filter into the traditional discussion. And uh, those have to do with the fine tuning data. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. From, yeah, from physics. Um, well, Ryan, go ahead. What, what questions did you want to ask? I just wanted to turn us from local design arguments to cosmic ones. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, well, maybe a good place to start would be maybe just walking through some of 
what you think are good critiques of the fine-tuning argument. And if you're familiar with maybe some of the contemporary uh, people like Robin Collins and Luke Barnes, uh, maybe you can uh, discuss your thoughts on their particular versions. Sure. So I, I think that one of the it, it, it relates somewhat to one of the comments I made a while ago that if you're confronted with these kind of arguments, there's kind of two approaches you could do. You could kind of play the game from the inside with their assumptions, or you could play the game from the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that uh, 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 Elliot Silber is one of the, the people who uh, addresses fine tuning. Yeah, from the inside, so to speak, with working with some of their assumptions, which again makes it makes it stronger. I think against the defender of the fine tuning. My personal response, and the one I, the one I give uh, in this new book, is actually from the outside, and and, and I think that's actually a, a somewhere where my thinking on this has changed since my 2013 article. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there's this goofy false dichotomy between it's got to be design or chance. And that using fine-tuning in this way seems to be kind of an, an inappropriate uh, appropriation of probability theory. So we use probability when we have no reason to believe one rather than another, um, but it's, a, it's, it's an approximation we use to help form a belief about something with which we have insufficient knowledge. Um, and it's a helpful one, but notice it's epistemic. I use probability theory playing poker when I don't know what the top card of the of the deck is. Mm-hmm. That's when I use it. But it's far from clear uh, why I think we should be able to use that in any meaningful way in determining constants in the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we think that there's some sort of you know giant lottery machine cranking these random values that? could end up being the constant and Hubble's uh, could end up being Hubble's constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think there's this big cosmic die roll at the big bang. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of question is a reasonable, B impossible to answer. And I don't mean impossible for the theist. I mean, impossible for anybody, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just this giant, massive unargued assumption that I just, I, once I realized that assumption uh, and and just how I use probability theory, I just don't have kind of any sympathy for uh, for the fine tuning arguments anymore. And by the way, that's uh, the, 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 the the that was Everett again who started uh, kind of changing my thinking about these. So credit where credits due. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, just a curious question then, and coming because uh, you talked about sort of design versus chance. Um, I happen to be sympathetic, and I don't know how popular of an opinion this is, but I happen to be pretty sympathetic to uh, uh, multiverse proposals. But uh, I don't know what are your thoughts about that. Is that even uh, on your radar? Uh, is that even plausible to you that there might be a multiverse, and that could that be a good response to the idea of fine tuning? So, are you talking about uh, a physical multiverse? Like a Siskindian one, or are you talking about uh, kind of pos- uh, Lewisian possible worlds as actual kind of multiverse? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I- I'm going to purposely leave it a little bit vague uh, there because, well, I don't know if you're familiar with Max Tegmark. He's a cosmologist and theoretical physicist at MIT, and he actually um, does something of a taxonomy of possible worlds. So he has like four levels um, that he talks about, uh, you know, like uh, number one would be sort of the idea that our, uh, uh, what we call the, our universe is sort of the local uh, 
Hubble volume, if you will, or our observable universe. And then very, very far away, there are other pockets uh, of universes, perhaps even infinitely many. And then you've got, like you said, the the Susskindian version. Um, you've got the Everett many worlds uh, from quantum physics, which I think he puts at like a level three multiverse. And then at level four is more of like what you were referring to as the Lewisian um, sort of modal realism where he he has what he calls the mathematical universe hypothesis, where he takes actually the universe itself to be a mathematical structure, sort of existing, um, I'll say, I'll say somewhat platonically in a vast, um, you know, sort of uh, infinite space of all possible mathematical structures that could uh, be considered physical in some sense from the inside. Um, so I guess I'll leave it kind of broad like that. Do you think any of those sorts of proposals would be uh, feasible or have any sort of merit to them? Uh, I do. Uh, I, 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 I reject the level fours. I don't, uh, Lewis is brilliant, but I just, I, I, I think he just assumptions about modal, about modality run wild. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't find anything particularly persuasive there for, for reasons I've been saying all day. Okay. Uh, now, in, in terms of the other ones, they seem to be cosmological possibilities uh, rather than metaphysical. And I, as, as a general rule, I, I tend to want to deal when uh, if if the science ends up supporting that, such as the unraveling of string theory and the n dimension. You know, if 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 that implies multiple worlds, uh, great. I'll probably start supporting multiple worlds. Yeah, sure. Uh, now, now here's the interesting question: mm -hmm. uh, Is to what degree do such things weigh in on the fine-tuning arguments? Mm -hmm. uh, that see that that's one of the ones that I, I I find it a lot harder to go from one to the other. I find that even given a plurality of multiple worlds, uh, possible worlds in that sense, it's there would have to be an infinity of possible worlds with different laws of nature to try to reply. Uh, like a lot of people want to reply to the fine-tuning arguments, but that's that's a lot harder. I think that philosophers are very often a little too grabby about what constitutes a possible world to begin with. So let You're me also going to have to appeal to something like a weak anthropic principle for it to even matter, because like with a multiverse, you might be able to. The theist will surely grant you know that it's possible that in some universe the the constants you know the, the cosmic values are right. Why, what explains why our cosmic constants are right? Um, and so you have to appeal to some, you'd have to say, you know, look, we're, that's the, the, that the probability of that happening has to be one because we exist. And just the mere fact that we are observers and we observe that the cosmic values are right, you know, what, what good has the multiverse really done us here other than generate the probabilities necessary to make something like the conditions that we observe possible for life, right? Is that, um, I guess there's still an open question to me. Really, really things got a little quieter at the end, but yeah, there's, uh, there's certainly things that have to be said, but I think it's an enormous step in the right direction. Um, you know, you should be surprised if you get struck by lightning, all things considered, but you shouldn't be surprised that somebody gets struck by lightning. Right. 
Um, so once you've granted that it's not surprising that there is a universe in which uh, that is the, uh, in which the constants are right for life, I think that that, that cell gets a lot easier. Mm. But yeah, in in general, I just I just want to you know you don't want to say multiverse theory. Therefore, we have a full representation of all the physical constants and life enough to make it probable that one could sustain life. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that now you're going to have to build a lot more in, but I think maybe it's a promising start if, sure. uh, again, it, if the science supports it. It's at least a, a live option, perhaps. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Lewisian possible worlds just you have to make too much of a leap in in certain ways. Okay. Are, are you familiar with Bishop Barron? A little bit. So I guess uh, just for the listeners too, uh, Bishop. Baron, he's a Roman Catholic archbishop uh, who runs the Word on Fire Ministries, and it's a, probably the most popular Catholic outreach organization in the world. But uh, he he commented on the dialogue between science and religion and, and noted that, um, well, his particular argument was that in order for us to do science in the first place, the universe has to have patterns and form and intelligibility. And, and he argues that only theism can account for the intelligibility of reality that allows us for science to do, uh, or allows us to do science in the first place. How would, how would you respond to him? That's going a little bit back kind of to the sort of the claims that, you know, you need to have our, our beliefs to make, uh, the world intelligible, but uh, I don't know. Do you have a particular way that you would respond to, uh, his, his particular argument here? Um, so the, the first part is obviously right. The universe has to have patterns for intelligibility, right. Um, in order for us to comprehend it, but I just, I haven't read his argument specifically, but it does not seem like there's a non-question-begging reason to think that order can come only from minds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that thought is at least as old as Hume. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Hume gives the example of, well, in our part of the universe alone, he says that we have multiple principles of order. Mm -hmm. Yes, we see order coming from intelligence, but we also see order coming from instincts, so spiders weaving webs without a frontal cortex. Uh, we see order coming from vegetation. Uh, the acorn bestows order on the tree without any type of knowledge or very similar with animals. And so you have, uh, th th that's the weird part of the dialogues where Philo is drawing an analogy between the universe and the spider. And so, so the point is experience supports that order comes from different things. Mm -hmm. And not uh, order does not always come from uh, intelligence, and so I'm very pessimistic about the ability to make the leap from order can only come from minds in a non-question manner. That I just I don't foresee that as a hopeful avenue. I, I'd, I'd be happy to look at arguments regarding it, but I haven't seen a persuasive one. Sure. I guess maybe a, a last. Well, well, hold on. Let me let me add one thing. One oh thing. yeah, go ahead, please, please. Uh, Hume also has a very a very important other argument to this, which is. And it's for reasons like this. A lot of people say the design arguments implicitly rely on cosmological arguments. There, there's an infinite regress involved, so a vicious regress. That if mm -hmm. you say, wait a minute, complexity, purposiveness, and order imply a designing mind. Well, if that's an inference we have to make, we have the, the designer's mind is going to be complex, purposive, orderly, which means we'd have to infer grand god and great grand god and great great grand god, da 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 da. Mm -hmm. And so, the, the, if you stop that regress by saying we don't need to ask who designed God, you're you're just back at cosmological considerations. Sure. No, that's a good point. Uh, now, with respect to 
design arguments in general, I, I notice I, now again, there's, there's sometimes a difference between sort of the sophisticated professional level design arguments and then some of the ones that, you know, people make uh, in more everyday, I guess, circumstances. But I, I was just curious, a lot of people, um, when they make a design argument uh, in support of their beliefs, there's sort of the uh, reliance on contrasting humanly designed artifacts, you know, against nature. Um, but then on the, at the same time, they want to maintain that all of nature is designed. So do you think that's a, a major problem lurking in design arguments? The fact that they're kind of treating nature on one hand as something to com like it's natural comparing it to something designed, but then they want to infer that everything is designed at the same time. Does that make sense? Uh, no, I do not. Okay. Oh yeah, this make, makes perfect sense. Um, this is this is just one of the things that I um, when when I'm teaching Paley in introductory courses, uh, you know, Paley makes the very it, it's a subtle but important point is that when we pick up the watch, we immediately infer design. And this isn't this long complex introspection, mm -hmm. and I think you, that that it's perfectly fair to say, I mean, we obviously need to be a little careful about what we mean when we say immediate and things like that, but you can make a meaningful distinction and say, I do immediately infer design in the watch, I don't immediately infer design in the rock. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's enough to avoid that worry with the design arguments as long as you're a little careful about what you mean by immediate inferring. So would you say they're not immediately inferring that the uh, universe is designed or? Right, and okay. so, and so the the, the, what the the argument by analogy, what it does mm -hmm. is if we look at things that we immediately infer design and immediately don't, mm -hmm. uh, and more importantly, what we should immediately infer as design and what we don't, we're isolating properties for an analogy. We're trying to figure out if those properties are relevant mm -hmm. to whether we should infer design or not. Mm -hmm. And so you can see it as kind of a corrective that, well, uh, we're not talking about whether we do infer design immediately with the rock, but whether we should. Mm -hmm. And so if I isolate the features that allow me to immediately infer design in the watch, but don't inf immediately infer it in the rock, uh, that's that's actually very useful. Now, obviously I'm using Paley's example here, uh, but notice that even Paley's example, you could kind of come back and say, well, but it's also depends on where your perspective is, that if I'm uh, maybe if I could look at the rock at a molecular level, uh, I might immediately infer design if you could if you could see it in certain ways. But Paley's argument and I think good good analogical design arguments leave that open, uh, and I think that they're not begging any question in reasoning in that way because otherwise you're it, you know, it's just kind of similar to an old uh, well you're always trapped in the web of your own experience. But if you can identify meaningful differences between the, the stone on the beach and the watch on the beach. That should be enough. Now, that's not to say the argument's successful. I just don't think the shortcoming is that one. So you mentioned the immediate inference to design of from a, seeing a watch versus a rock. And I was curious um, if that immediate inference would apply perhaps to any rational creature whatsoever that came across a rock versus a watch, um, regardless of background knowledge. No, and I think that cuts both ways. Just, just like a geologist might see more about uh, a rock than we do, mm -hmm. um, per, the, the people with less experience are going to see 
less in the watch. Now, we have to be really careful here. I'm not trying to straw man, but certainly a small child isn't going to make the distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that most adults are. And, and I think that, you know, there, there's some really good additions to this because, you know, Hume pointed out, well, wait a minute, uh, the watch is purposive. We have no idea what the universe is for. But then Paley points out, well, we don't actually need purpose. We just need purposiveness. So if I found a you know gearbox that if I turn this gear, it turns that one, et cetera, mm -hmm. I'd still infer a designer. Um, but but yeah, I think there's you know I, I I think there's some subjectivism there, but I think it's uh, I I think that Paley is making a lot more user friendly argument than say if he brought in a bunch of metaphysical assumptions as well. I think that if you are the type of person who would make those type of inferences, then there's then there's some force to the argument before you consider objections. Mm -hmm. One last question here in terms of the uh, design things. Um, so, so it happens to be an open problem in cosmology as to why the universe uh, began with such a low entropy state. Do you happen to think that that is a potential place where theists might have a better explanation, or do you think that would just be arguing from ignorance? I, I think it's a it, it's not a bad place for a theist to make an entrance, but I think it's one that, if they're intellectually honest, is going to be very, very double-edged. Because mm -hmm. if you do that, uh, you're staking your claim to something that uh, science in principle might be able to answer one day. Right. Uh, and, you know, the history of uh, science and the philosophy of science is, well, the theist has a dilemma. If you posit a theistic explanation for something science can and eventually does explain, you know, you, you have to shift your goalposts or you have to alter your beliefs. And so it's one of those things that uh, if a theist wants to go for it, go for it. Just do so in an intellectual and honest way. Sure. I think we know little enough about the initial states of the universe to really uh, have strong intuitions about whether a theistic explanation is a better one there. And Fair so it's, yeah. it's, 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 there's probably not a lot of reward there, but I, I don't think it would be unreasonable for a theist to do so. Okay. So I guess this will kind of bring us into the, because uh, you make some conclusion or you have a section on conclusions regarding existential natural theology and in terms of this explanation idea there was a uh, in wiley's blackwell's uh, contemporary debates in philosophy of religion there was a discussion between dr graham oppie and um, uh, dr robert coons and, and this one was more in, in terms of the cosmological arguments um, but since we kind of were talking here just a second ago about the initial entropy uh, i think this is something that applies but the specific question was, does the universe have a cause? And if you don't mind, I'll just kind of read what Dr. Coons said, and then maybe you can give your thoughts on his response to Oppie. But here's what he said. He said, uh, Graham Oppie does a fine job of analyzing the question of the existence of a supernatural cause of the universe when understood on the model of a scientific inference. I approach the question from a different angle, one that is more metaphysical and prior to typical scientific inquiry, focusing on the nature of causal inference in general, seeking to define the form it must take if any scientific knowledge is to be possible. And of course, that that uh, also relates a little bit to the Bishop Barron's argument that you already talked about. But what are your thoughts on Kuhn's response to uh, Oppie in that regard? Uh, there, there, there's a couple of things to be said there. One is 
metaphysics is meta for a reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it kind of depends on your stance there. I think that anytime you, you, you start starting with metaphysics is an odd position if you are starting with metaphysics in a way that can trump physics. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's inappropriate. Uh, I think meta should be taken as beyond physics rather than prior to physics. And I think that its job is to uh, tackle the things the sciences can't. Mm -hmm. And so when, when uh, Dr. Coons says, uh, well, I'm going to start with the nature of causal inference in general, seems to be saying... I'm going to start with metaphysics independently of how well it meshes with physics. Mm -hmm. And that's what it sounds like. Uh, now, whether that's what's happening or not is, is a different story uh, just from that little snippet. But I think that it, it's uh, generally inadvisable to have a metaphysics that commits you to things about science that can end up being falsified. Mm -hmm. um, and or that have been falsified. Uh, I think that philosophy starts where science stops. Uh, and so I, in, in general, I think an Oppian approach of model of scientific inference is a very reasonable place to start, at least prima facie. Uh, but notice it also ends up, it's not as bad as all of that. I, I, I do want to clarify this because we are talking about something about where science cannot necessarily have a say, at least as of now. So it's actually much closer to, you know, what we talked about in terms of how do we interpret the Big Bang? Is it better interpreted naturally or supernaturally? I think that's the better underlier than just trying to say that Kuhn's doing something sneaky here. Uh -huh. um, but it's just kind of a cautionary tale in careful about your metaphysical commitments. And, and then we can have this discussion. Sure. So... Going along with that, I guess a common complaint against naturalists and atheists is that they treat the issue of God's existence as more of a, a scientific hypothesis as opposed to a metaphysical explanation. So is there sort of a relationship going on there in terms of uh, seeing theism as an explanatory hypothesis versus more of a metaphysical explanation? I think there are a few interesting things to say about that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and I think the first has to do with something we were talking about in terms of whether we should approach cosmological arguments based on PSR mm -hmm. uh, versus... Uh, can, uh, but but so there, there's there's something a little bit like, like that going on, that if we talk about a god as doing this explanatory work, we're very sympathetic to just the power of explanation that everything must have the explanation. The world I live in is such that one is explained. Not only that, but the explanation must meet these intellectually satisfactory criteria. That's one way to go. If you, if instead you talk about uh, a God as a hypothesis, um, you know, that when, once we start talking about, well, what data would a God predict? Now you're talking my language. I'm, I'm interested in hypotheses that do things and not as interested in hypotheses that might slake a metaphysical thirst. So uh, I think those are very different. Uh, and, I, and I think that's really uh, kind of represented and trickles down in the theistic philosophy literature that people like Swinburne are going to approach things very, very differently than the analytic Thomists who have this uh, explanatory explanation about the world. Mm -hmm. 
I will say, uh, and I think this is important, I'm not convinced atheist naturalism does have as complete an explanation as theism. Okay. I think, I, I think that it might be reasonable to say that it's not any more intellectually nourishing when it comes to kind of the origin and ultimate explanation of things. I think that people don't like to talk about regresses or brute facts or uh, maybe the laws of nature are just necessary And uh, uh, when we get to, to the rock bottom level. Yeah. I don't think people like to talk about that, and I think it makes them squirmy talking about that to some yeah. degree yeah. Uh, and maybe even embarrassed, but I think that the benefits outweigh the cost, that it provides a much better explanatory hypothesis in more... Uh, real-world applications. Okay, yeah. I got one more quote from J.H. Sobel here. It's a bit of a long one. Are you okay with that? Sure, go ahead. Okay. And if you need me to repeat anything, just let me know. But it comes from his logic and theism. And since we were just talking about uh, design arguments and such, but this is his concluding remarks on teleological arguments. Here's what he says. Theistic explanations have always drawn their evidential support from facts for which no natural explanations were known. And so as the bounds of science expand and more and more of nature's puzzles are solved in nature's terms, the evidential supports for theistic hypotheses contracts and at the limit it vanishes. When this kinematic becomes evident to persons who are in uh, initial sympathy with the methods of natural theology, something remarkable can happen to their arguments. The claim that facts, in order to be made intelligible, need to be understood in theistic terms can change. It tends to change from the claim that this is required for purposes of a good, open-ended, ordinary explanation of facts concerning many living things to be the claim that only by recourse to supernatural terms and necessary beings can one reach a really complete and finished understanding of anything at all. What begins as teleological arguments for designers are apt to end as cosmological arguments for necessary beings, as self-explaining ultimate causes or reasons for contingencies. What are initially entirely reasonable quests for ordinary explanations of certain aspects of nature have a way of degenerating into what are quite unreasonable demands for utterly impossible kinds of explanations of or grounds for contingencies. They have a way of doing this as the suspicion grows that in the end, science and ordinary natural explanations are bound to appropriate to themselves all would-be evidence for supernatural explanations and all explanatory roles that theisms might perform. Whew. All right, so if you got all that, do you have any thoughts or insights on Sobel's perspective here? But you were kind of touching on the similar thing, so... Yeah, so if I heard you right, he actually, the, the, that quote starts with something that I find weirdly false uh, and that he's therefore being much more charitable to theists than maybe uh, not because he said that theistic explanations have always drawn their evidential support from facts for which no natural explanations were known. Mm -hmm. uh, no, that's, that's, that's not true. You know, you have people defending design arguments long after natural explanations like evolution argument. But having said that, I mean that's just that's just a small point. But yeah. I but I think it's more indicative of the actual answer I want to give here, uh -huh. which is, you know, I, I think that's how progress, intellectual progress, has to go. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you do. I, I think there is kind of this real uh, realization that local design arguments are a non-starter. Mm -hmm. um, that the sciences have made all of them uh, redundant and put them in the back seat. 
uh, and we therefore have good reason to reject them. And so we have to shift if, if we're not going to appeal to God about the design of the human eye. Well, then we have to talk about God as designing the laws of evolution that account for the, the, for the human eye. And so um, maybe a bit more sympathetically than Sobel is that this should happen. We, it, it's not just a moving the goalpost. Good intellectual honesty and care should move us away from local design arguments to global ones. Uh, and, and there's a couple of reasons we could talk about for that. But once we start getting into the global design arguments and we start talking about why these laws and we start having to talk about the moment, at, uh, moment of creation, we're back at Kalam cosmological arguments. Right, right. By the way, that's not a new idea. Again, Kant said 200 years ago that design arguments implicitly assume cosmological arguments. Yeah. Would you say that you agree with Sabel on, on sort of the explanatory progress of of natural and scientific explanations and also sort of the shift in natural theology, sort of where we're going from uh, a posteriori teleological arguments to more modal and a priori cosmological arguments? Uh, almost. Uh, I, I agree that that shift is there. I disagree that it has to be a priori or modal. Okay. But I, I do think that the theists, uh, if they're going to put God in the world somewhere, it has to be at a point of creation, uh, uh, at a beginning, and at a, at a place where science in principle can't give us the answer. That's that's where they're going to be on the surest footing. Mm -hmm. And I think they're badly exposed if they do anything else. Uh, but notice that does kind of creates a, a little bit of a dilemma for the theists. Well, if theism predicts the world exactly as it is, Mm -hmm. then it just adds nothing and doesn't actually seed anything and, and just seeds creation to the sciences. But if the prediction, uh, if it predicts something different and those predictions are not borne out, then you've just created kind of a falsifier of your own view. Right. And so I think that also uh, connects to the talk about meaning, like things like things like value and ethics, uh, which we talk, which I talk about later in the text, are are things that theism, in principle, doesn't have to cede to science, and that might be kind of a complement to uh, where uh, where they enter into things here. Right. Okay. We'll kind of we'll, we'll kind of move on then to the because uh, you you have a section devoted to the uh, concept or concepts of God as well, which I. I think it's interesting. And, and you go over several different models of God. And I think my first question would be, what are your thoughts on the classical theists like David Bentley Hart? And then I meant, uh, again, Bishop Barron. And you got uh, a lot of the Thomas who say that God is the uh, ground of all being or being itself uh, rather than uh, being in the universe. And what are your thoughts on these views? Like, do you think something like being itself is even a coherent idea? Do you have any particular thoughts on those models of God? Yes and no. Uh, I think being itself is coherent. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a problem with being itself, uh, but if you talk about being itself as personal or being as some sort of emanation, mm -hmm. uh, those are a lot trickier concepts for me, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, is that is the direction that Bentley Hart and Barron go. So. Right. Are there any particular models that you find would be like the most coherent or defensible? Uh, I, th I think that's the, that's the Swinburne model that, uh, well, God has to be in time. I think it's the atemporal personhood is incoherent. Uh -huh. uh, not simple in that sense, not immutable in that sense. 
Mm-hmm. I think I think those are much 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 more defensible. I think that you lose very little mm-hmm. by by shifting to a god of that depiction. Okay. Um, I don't think there's a lot of advantages to the depiction of classical theism. Sure. Well, yeah. And now that you re- mentioned it, could you kind of maybe walk us through a little bit of the problems that of divine eternity and God's relationship time, since you mentioned that sure. as far as uh, God should be in time? Uh, what are your what are your thoughts and reasons for that? You know, and and, and it's uh, I, I have reasons. I don't I don't know if any of them are particularly unique. I think Nielsen did a really good job on a lot of this. But I mm-hmm. uh, I, I the only thing I add is I, I set up eternality as a dilemma. Well, either God exists in time or out of time. God is out of time. There's a lot of problems. I'll get back to in a minute. But if God is in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a problem as well because then you have a perfect intellect seeming to twiddle thumbs for an infinity yeah. before creating, even though creation is supposed to be good. Uh-huh. And so that's hard. Now, in terms of an immutable person, first of all, I've never really seen it defended except anything like vague analogies, like a person sitting on a hill looking at all these different things. Mm-hmm. In and of itself, that's not fatal, but it's a worry. Uh, mm-hmm. I think one interesting discussion I had with a Thomas one time is it was definitely not his intent, but he convinced me quite thoroughly that an immutable deity entails determinism and no freedom of the will because five minutes from now is equally real to God. Mm-hmm. And God is already gutting on that time time. And of course, there's just this issue of personhood. Well, things like thought and decision uh, and things like love and any literally any part of being a person we know of or have any experience is essentially temporal, as is causation. Uh, I don't even know what a, ca- I, I think a temporal causation seems to be incoherent too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's something I say independently of my beliefs about theism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just, you, you pay a very high cost in shifting to a timeless deity. Uh, if it's immutable, of course, then you have worries about, well, uh, does that mean prayer can't work? <laughs> because that seems yeah. to be attempting to influence a deity in actions and all that stuff. So I think I'm not saying there aren't sophisticated accounts that try to address each and every one of these, but just like we talked about a while ago, mm-hmm. the more complex and sophisticated accounts you have to say about it, the, the, the more it lowers the prior probability. That's even if you can get it to be clearly coherent. Right. Right. Well, and then you, you end the section actually with a, a list of 20, um, what you call different paradoxes. Uh, do you have any oh, in particular? 20, there's more. <laughs> there's more. In that list, though, do you have any in particular that you find uh, the most challenging or forceful that you would adopt uh, as the best ones to use uh, from that list? Uh, yeah. Obviously, I think if, if we're talking theism with a capital T, I think yeah. uh, the problem of evil makes a brief appearance there. I think that one's hard. Uh, right. I actually really, it really bothers me just not even just that an issue of philosophy of religion, but how I live my life is. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a deep tension between justice and mercy. And I like both of those things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it bothers me that they're incompatible. <laughs> so uh-huh. there's that one. And then just for for classical theism, I think I think a temporal personhood is just right. nothing like what we mean by person. And I think it's uh, right at the edge of incoherent on one side or the other. But more so, I, I just wanted to emphasize, you know, the cumulative effect is what is really important. It's... Uh-huh. How, how this affects the, the probabilities when you have to address all of these if you want to be a theist, or I should say all of them if you want to be a classical theist. Uh, obviously, you know, Swinburne, 
and, and crew is on a little better footing there. So that's a good transition to the problem of evil then, since you mentioned that as one of the rather tougher issues to overcome for capital T theists. Maybe an initial question would be, you know, a lot of people have argued that planning a killed the logical problem of evil. What what are your thoughts on uh, uh, that? Do you think that uh, that's not quite true? Or do you think he did sort of sufficiently address it and it's better to go with sort of an evidentialist approach or, or, or do you think uh, a, a logical one could be defended still? I think two things. One, I think it is better to go with an evidential approach, but I also think that he didn't kill the logical problem. Okay. Yeah. You know, this, the book has to be of necessity summative, but I, I footnoted some of the problems. And I think the biggest problem just is, I, I feel like people who think the logical problem is dead due to planning, I just haven't taught much ethics. Like <laughs> it just seems false as an ethical principle that in order for something to be morally significant, the choice must be between right and wrong because clearly choices between right and neutral are morally significant choices. Uh, and so like one of the heaviest assumptions that it, that it leans on just just I uh, give it an incredulous stare like well wait a minute uh, uh-huh. why, why even think that tenet's true uh-huh. and then of course there's some details that apply much more fully to the evidential problems is that every time you're you're trying to explain evil in some way you have to account for degree and you have to account for distribution Mm-hmm. And I think just saying free will by itself doesn't do that because it doesn't seem to cover, okay, well, maybe maybe it's good that the uh, soldier bayoneting the infant can express their free will in committing murder, but it seems to not cover the latter's free will. And so if free will is a good in that way, it seems like it has to be a good for everyone, not just some of the individuals. Sure. Yeah. Even on the evidential side, I mean, we were really talking about a whole family of arguments here too, aren't we? Uh, yeah. So we got like, uh, I know there's uh, Mackie and Smith, Schellenberg, Rose, Bruce Russell's, um, Sobel has a Bayesian version. Do you happen to find it, any of these in particular um, stronger than others or are they all um, pretty? Yeah, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, I think it kind of depends on what your goal is, if you're trying to convince yourself that you're an atheist, um, (laughs) well, I don't need to do that. But I I think in terms of just pure objective power, I think that uh, uh, what Draper calls the human version, where you're comparing alternatives and abductively rejecting the least possible. And I think that could also be interpreted as Bayesian as well, by the way. But I think that's just from a pure logic, assuming a neutral starting point, that one would be the most powerful. Okay. I think Rose, uh, you know, by by kind of starting from these very specific examples, rather than distribution and predictions, uh, that that's gonna. If your goal is kind of convincing someone of the power of evil, uh, uh, the power of the problem of evil, I think that it's a more persuasive piece. But that's not because it has better logical chops. I mean, it has good logical chops, but mm-hmm. uh, just might work in certain ways better. Um, so Mackey obviously defended the logical version, which I've seen a piece on presented his opinion. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, and and I think the atheist naturalist here, well, just any atheist really, not just naturalist, uh, it is just helped by just the appallingly unsatisfactory nature of theodicies. They're just sure. like, the best ones aren't very even close to good. <laughs> um, Building off of that, then, how would you respond to some of the theists who who would say that the problem of evil <laughs> 
presupposes something like objective morality and that one needs to be a moral realist in order to uh, make the problem of evil. And again, I don't know if too many, I don't know if too many like high-end philosophers would never uh, necessarily say that, but I, again, I know uh, going back to some of these popular apologists like Frank Turek, you know, they, they claim that you're basically stealing from God, you know, uh, you gotta, you gotta accept basically their version of morality in order to even make this argument work. Um, how do you how do you respond to that, or how do you recommend an atheist uh, respond to someone who's taking that line of reasoning? So, so Turek definitely did that a lot in his book. I think, uh, yeah, you know, something I address a little later in my book. Um, well, it's just unless you're really doing some mental gyrations, it's just wildly <laughs> false to claim that you need to be atheist to be moral mm-hmm. uh, or to have an objective grounding morality. Um, right. I have a pretty famous book by Aristotle, The Nicomachean Ethics, that was written by somebody who's an atheist for all intents and purposes. Uh, we have utilitarianism, we have deontology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have lots of, lots of coherent, careful moral systems that do not require God in any sense. Mm-hmm. And so if you say, well, if you are, are an ethical realist, you're really a theist in disguise. I mean, it just seems like foot stamping. I think. Yeah. And it also seems to ignore a lot of biology too. Do you but, think... Um, oh, go ahead. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, because, you know, we know a lot of non-human things that act, quote-unquote, morally, and, you know, there's, there's experiments where monkeys recognize injustice, uh, for, for crying out loud. There's, there's, and I don't think there's any experience to show that monkeys can be theists. Right. But, but and it's just, it's just so contrary to reality. Having said all of that, it's important to really realize that all you really need for the problem of evil is... If there's any sense in which you could say that someone is blameworthy for allowing more than a certain amount of suffering, mm-hmm. and that's that's pretty morally neutral and independent mm-hmm. of which meta ethic you adopt. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, do you do you think a person needs to even be a moral realist to uh, run the problem of evil argument? Uh, no, because ultimately the problem of evil is right playing the theist game. Right. That well. If the theist grants that theism would entail moral realism, mm-hmm. uh, the problem the problem still goes full force regardless of whether the person presenting the problem is a moral realist. Right. It's more like a reductio sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of, or, and maybe you can explain a little bit of your understanding of um, and, and what critique you might give of skeptical theism's response to the problem of evil. How would you, how would you address their approach and sort of defense against it? I guess my first claim is I, I feel like it's an approach out of necessity mm-hmm. uh, because the, the, the Odyssey is just, you know, I, I, I will say a word or two so it doesn't seem like I'm dogmatic about this, but to, for, a, for, for to talk about the problem of evil, you have to talk about degree. And it seems like that the Odyssey is as presented just never talk sufficiently about degree. Why is this amount of freedom the perfect amount of freedom? Mm-hmm. Why is this amount of suffering the perfect amount to give us you know, courage and all these other soul-making properties? Why do we need this many people to die to appreciate life? It's just not there. Uh, and then, of course, you also have you know these issues of justice and distribution. If this is a good that's worth it, then we should expect certain distribution patterns that just don't show up. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... You know, if theists want to start really getting into theodicy, you know, just get into those issues. Present present your findings. Tell me why, you know, why the distributions of, of suffering between a perfectly just deity and no deity at all are identical, right? That, that's 
that's what you need to talk about. And until those conversations really happen in earnest, I just, uh, I don't see much uh, persuasiveness in the Odyssey. Now, having said that, from that point, uh, you might just say, wow, the problem of evil really is too hard. And there are theists who say that, by the way. Uh, Swinburne says that the existence of God basically says all of these considerations favor a deity. This one is against it, but the former outweigh the latter, which could really lead to a skeptical theism. So skeptical theism, to my understanding, the best version of it is going to say, well, well, there's a couple versions of it. One, you could say, uh, if I have really good reason to believe there's a God independently of the problem, of evil, then being presented with the problem of evil might reduce my certainty, uh, but still let me tentatively believe in the God of theism. If that's the case, then that entails that there are reasons for this suffering, even if I don't know them. Mm -hmm. And so it's skeptical in that way. Right. Uh, that version presented as such, there's nothing intellectually wrong with it, but notice that requires you to give these very good reasons for believing not just in a higher power, but in a perfectly good God, independent of the problem of evil. And that's at least a Herculean, if not a Sisyphusian task, because <laughs> ontological arguments don't seem to do it, and revelations are going to have problems we can talk about later. Yeah. Certainly not going to be strong enough evidence to overcome the problem of evil. Uh, the other version of skeptical theism is just the we shouldn't expect to know God's reasons kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that, well, we should be skeptical of our own ability to understand these overriding reasons for God. Uh, I think that the latter, the, the biggest problem is, why are we doing religion in the first place? What, what I mean by that is we have worshipworthiness to consider. That if a being is not worshipworthy, then we don't really have any important things to do with religion. And uh, the concern about a being who has reasons and morality that we can't understand, and that that being doesn't really even give us any head nod of what it, what they might be, is, is this undercutting of worshipworthiness. And now you're, uh, some theistic listeners might say, so what? But remember, one of the things, uh, one of the definitions of theism in the capital T sense is maximal worshipworthiness. So if a god could have done better, say by making reasons for suffering more clear, uh, there's there's still a significant problem there. Right. Well, do you think that, um, I mean, theists are pretty fond of claiming that, you know, they can make a cumulative case uh, on behalf of theism. Do you think uh, atheists could make a, a similar cumulative case by uh, putting together all these different arguments from evil and, and then maybe even pairing that with like, you know, you've got hiddenness, divine hiddenness. I guess that might be a form or very, it's like a cousin maybe of the argument from evil. But and some of these arguments like argument from scale or physical dependency of minds, do you think these can all be put together for a pretty powerful cumulative defense? Um, so I, I guess I want to say two things, big picture. One they should be. All of our beliefs, every belief we have should be based on all available evidence. If you're forming your belief based on only some evidence, right. uh, you're doing something very illicit. So <laughs> they definitely should. Uh, do I, uh, in terms of, are they stronger the more they go together? Well, just like the theist, it depends on how good the individual pieces are. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, and this goes back to something I said about intellectual honesty a few times and not just going to battle formations. Uh, we were having a long uh, argument at the bar because I was really laying into uh, 
one of my colleagues who'd given a version of the argument from creepiness that uh, God knowing all of our secrets undermines uh, morality. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there arguing and that that just didn't work because of the creator created dichotomy. And, and one of the other people was there was like, wait a minute, aren't you an atheist? I'm like, yes, but I'm not an atheist, you know, uh -huh. uh, by birth. I, I'm a pursuer of truth who thinks that it much closer aligns with it. You, and so, you know, uh, as a practical concern, I think it actually hurts theists when they just throw it at the wall and see what sticks or raise it up the flagpole and see who salutes. Uh, and I think it, and I think it hurts atheists as well. Uh -huh. uh, I think that dialectically, if you put out a, a obviously flawed argument, uh, I think that's going to weaken your position better than it strengthens it. So uh, just be careful with your cumulative cases uh, and really put the ones that actually contribute to belief rather than ones that sound snappy that might convince somebody. And yes, I think you can do that. Right, right. It's not good when anybody just sort of, like we talked about at the beginning, defends whatever supports their conclusions just because it supports their conclusions. Let's uh, go on to the um, section on the character of Revelation. And before we start, just yeah, I did want to emphasize, you know, this is one of the areas that I felt it's kind of lacking in the literature overall, and that's why I thought it was very important to kind of have the, have, have the last two major sections in the book. And, and the reason for that is, you know, this is where belief comes from, mm -hmm. for the most part. You don't, you don't uh, find theists who say, well, I was an agnostic, and then I thought really hard about my modal commitments revolved, involving the metaphysics of S5, and sure enough, yeah, so I just think it's very important to address these kind of concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think this is a good lead into the first question here is that you even note in the section that a lot of religious believers aren't even necessarily aware of a lot of the natural theology or the intellectual justifications for theism. And I guess our first question might be, do you think that that is sort of surprising on if theism is true? Like, w would we expect more theists to have justifications for their beliefs? Or is, is this more something we would uh, expect that they would just sort of believe based on uh, revelation or, or experiences or, or what have you? So two things. One, uh, notice it cuts. This also cuts both ways. There are plenty of atheists who are not aware of these arguments either. Right. Um, so that kind of goes back to the burden of proof. But I guess it depends on what you mean by expecting. Should, mm -hmm. If you're asking, given how people's minds work, no, it's not surprising at all. We are mm -hmm. uh, unreflective of most of our important beliefs. Uh, we form most of our major formative beliefs uh, about politics, ethics, and religion mm -hmm. uh, when we're between 10 and 13 years old. Right. Of course, that is long before we learn how to be good critical thinkers. Yeah, a lot uh, before. <laughs> now, yeah, now if you are asking in terms of uh, given that there's a God, is it surprising that way? Yes. Uh, yeah, that would be more of the sensitive question. You know, there, there's... Uh, I, I think you could probably uh, form an inductive argument that it comes out slightly in favor of atheist naturalism, mm -hmm. uh, given that, but uh, that uh, but that changes if we add things. If mm -hmm. we're talking about bare theism, mm -hmm. uh, it shouldn't be surprising at all. But if, uh, if, say, it's a theist deity who interacts in the way that is described in Holy Text Acts, then it's much more surprising because there, uh, then you have 
these uh, additional oddities that A, God wants to communicate certain things with us, and B, has communicated to at least some people unequivocally, uh, and da 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 So, bare theism, mild, mildly surprising, maybe a, maybe a C inductive argument. Uh, but if we want, uh, the more we add to it, depending on what we add, it could get a lot more surprising. Sure. Um, and, and one of the things I talked about in the text, well, if your claim, uh, and, and this is, I think, maybe my more important response, everybody must confront the problem of the myth. Well, wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of religious alternatives that are in disagreement with mine. So if I'm a Christian, I have to say Muslims are wrong in certain tenets. Uh, of course, unless I'm a pluralist uh, of certain description. But here, here's the important thing. If my response is, well, my religion is better grounded than theirs, uh, evidentially and rationally, then it's absolutely shocking uh, that this would be the case, that, that there are theists of that background that's supposed to be the most rational, uh, and yet most people uh, don't believe it for those reasons. It's instead, the pattern conforms to you're all you're eighty percent likely, uh, higher than eighty percent likely, to just be whatever religious beliefs your parents are. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very different argument, but uh, I think that's actually a much stronger one. But notice we have to build in a whole bunch of extra. Right. I, and kind of on the flip side of that, here's here's one I'm particularly interested in that I've sort of thought about as I've wrestled with these sorts of issues. You know. Like I said, I, I transitioned from being a, a pretty staunch believer to um, where I am now. But, uh, you know, as, as you look at some of these arguments and uh, justifications for God, you know, in the, in, uh, in the literature and in philosophy of religion and such, some of them are particularly dizzyingly complex and sophisticated. Um, I mean, they get into some really deep things and not only is it deep but it's very broad you know like all these different arguments and different uh areas of inquiry i guess you could say do you think and again i know that it will depend on whether we're doing bare theism or sort of a more specific form of theism but would this be something we would expect to be true um would we expect this issue to be so complicated and difficult if theism were actually true and i and again i, I know it'll depend on the sort of theism but i i i've my reaction is that I don't think we would find it to be such a difficult, you know, where you have to have like a, nearly a, several PhDs to really understand all these things in order to try to really figure it out. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think with bare theism, uh, it's, it's it prima facie not a reason against. Mm -hmm. uh, because bare theism doesn't entail that a God interacts with the world or wants right. us to do things. Uh, notice those, those are the two things that would actually get to so that God would want us to know it was there. Right. And so, yeah, bare, bare theism, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, there are some complex things in this universe. Uh, right. You know, the, I don't know how familiar you are with this, the story of Fermi's last theorem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but he said, he gives us, he mentions this little theorem in a, in a right. margin and says <laughs> the proof won't fit on this page. And yeah. Thanks. <laughs> many thanks more than a couple PhDs and several hundred pages of work later, there's right. the proof. Yeah. But, but yeah, once you shift to certain things that people put with theism, that he, but that is not entailed by bare theism, like, wants us to do certain things, uh, maybe an afterlife, uh, 
it's uh, et cetera, et cetera, then it's a much bigger problem. But it, but yeah, same answer. The problem depends on how much you pile in. But uh, we might go back to kind of a Rochelleberg view that well, mm -hmm. if it were if it were this complex, and knowing God's existence was somehow important to what we do with our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, then we should expect that to be expressed much more unequivocally. Right, right. Either through much higher caliber revelation or perhaps less complex influences. Right, right. You talk a little bit about religious disagreement as well. And do you think, and again, this will depend on our, uh, our, uh, what we pack into the idea, but do you find this to be a pretty forceful argument that one could uh, make as part of a cumulative case? I think so, and, and, and it's it's a little bit independent of what we added before, is to say, well, if theism is the rational option, uh, that is more rational than its alternatives, uh, including atheist naturalism, then we should expect that various patterns bear that out. Uh, we should expect more rational and more educated people to be uh, edging towards theism. Uh, we shouldn't expect these kinds of interreligious disputes uh, regarding the nature of theism that we see. And so I think with that kind of prediction of data, uh, I think it strongly undermines theism as most rational mm -hmm. uh, in terms of its competitors, but I think it also uh, provides some undermining of the more general time. This is good uh, leading then to sacred texts as well, since a lot of people claim that uh, God has revealed itself through some form of a sacred text. Could you maybe outline some of the primary challenges? So you you obviously wrote in this section that the primary challenges to scripture that you discuss, like what are some of the main challenges well, here? So just for, for the listeners out there, uh, mm -hmm. I try very hard not to be a Christian-centric philosopher of religion generally, mm -hmm. uh, but I know that's the religion with which most of my readers are the most familiar. Right. And so I use Judeo-Christian texts as an example to, to kind of typify these problems that virtually every sacred text has. So for instance, one is selection. Most of these texts existed before writing was common. Uh, and at some point in every religion or virtually every religion that has sacred texts, uh, that's decided by a group. A bunch of people uh, get together and say, yes, these are going to be included in our canon, uh, and these are going to be excluded. And if you're not aware that that's happening, as it's uh, most of the time when I talk about this, Christians end up being shocked. They're like, well, wait a minute, there were more than four Gospels? Yeah, there's lots of Gospels. <laughs> yeah. um, but only but only the four that matched each other the best ended up uh, making the cut, so to speak. Right. And so that that's a significant issue because then what are you going to do with that information? Uh, well, if a bunch of... You know, I usually use uh, I usually use gender neutral language too, but in these cases, it's actually not appropriate. When a bunch of men get together and decide which texts go into the canon, if I want to say that their selection was a correct one, I must say that it was guided in some way, um, and uh, those kind of stories uh, 
you know, they, they do exist. I don't want you to think otherwise. But so, for instance, the Catholic Church then said, well, they were guided by the Holy Spirit, which is guided the church sense. A consistent story, but without independent evidence that there is a Holy Spirit, which is a really hard sell for reasons we can talk about if you really want, <laughs> um, just doesn't end up being that good. And then much worse for uh, those that followed after the Magisterial Reformation, where Luther took books out of the Bible, well, did the Holy Spirit stop following the Catholic Church and follow Luther? Mm-hmm. Uh, and before you start putting too much privilege on Catholicism, remember, they also split with the Orthodox Church as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we call the problem of selection, uh, or at least I call the problem of selection. And again, not unique to Christianity. Uh, in Christianity, we know where a bunch of folk got together and resolved which books were going into the canon. Um, but but you also have that with the, the Pali canon and up there a lot of Buddhism, and you have, of course, the delegation of 12 uh, forming the Quran, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's one general problem. Another one is uh, what I call problems of transmission. Well, even when that's assembled, it still has to get from there to here. We don't have any of the original documents in Christianity. The oldest ones are copies of copies of letters of Paul. Mm-hmm. And we have, then we also have things like monks inserting. We know passages have been inserted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Some of the older texts we find might indicate passages were taken away, uh, et cetera. And uh, I'm going to talk about the relevance of all of this stuff in a minute, but... Uh, you know, of course, then there's also all these errors um, and historical errors, geographic errors, scientific errors, internal contradictions. All of those put together say they do something. And it depends on where you are kind of in your intellectual journey and thought uh, in terms of what they do. Uh, what's most important for this book, the way it's organized, is we're looking at sacred texts as a reason to believe in a God. Uh, and with those kind of errors, uh, they fail because if we're to get rid of the problems of selection and transmission, then we actually already have to kind of have a divine agency in place. And very similarly, if we are trying to interpret away uh, contradiction, contradictions, moral atrocities, etc. So you get a very different impact of how problematic these problems are, mm-hmm. in, depending on where we are. If, if I think I have really good reason to believe there's a good deity who inspired texts, and Christianity somehow has the best claim to that being likely, just use Christianity as an example, then these problems are minimized. But if the first chapters in the book have done their job, we don't have that either. Uh-huh. And so, um, but yeah, they're they're there, and uh, maybe you might be sympathetic to this. I, uh, the old joke is, the, well, what do, you, what do you do to become an atheist? You actually just sit down and read the Bible <laughs> uh, instead of just the passages that are highlighted. Uh-huh. Um, there, there's just some, there's some real, really serious problems in there that it's, it's hard to see how somebody who is not already heavily biased can just massage them. Right. I imagine then you agree with, you know, a lot of the atheists like Wes Morriston and uh, uh, Evan, uh, I think it's Favis, is that, or Fails, is that? Uh, I've heard Fails. But... Yeah, Fails, I think, I'm just hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. But uh, they've offered some pretty uh, trenchant cont- uh, critiques 
of God as pictured in the Old Testament. And so you got the ideas of like divine evil um, based on Old Testament violence and and uh, some of the divinely mandated commands. So, so I imagine you're pretty sympathetic to these being forceful uh, against revealed religion. Is that, would that be fair? Um, well, that's a too, so too strong a conclusion. But, but uh, first of all, uh, I always say Tanakh because Old Testament implies that Christianity is somehow correct. Sure. Um, but uh, there's a couple things. One, if, if you're not a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, then say you're of the Jewish persuasion and you're reading through the Tanakh, you're not always committed to these tenets of theism such as moral perfection. Mm-hmm. And so some of these uh, moral atrocities can be uh, massaged away, but it's, it's especially, pardon the pun, it's especially damning for the Christian mm-hmm. be, uh, for two reasons. One, they, they're tend to defend a theistic picture where the God is perfectly good that is strongly undermined by these stories. Uh, But of course, too, the other issue is they're also trying to appropriate this. And so there's also this high tension between how God is depicted in those two. Um, So it creates kind of this double problem. Uh, Now, the last question you said was, do you think these arguments are forceful to reveal religion? Uh, Some reveal religions, such as Christianity. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, just as a quick anecdote, uh, there, I was in a, in a discussion once about this, and um, somebody was talking about this, and 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 uh, someone who was uh, the Jewish uh, Jewish faith in the room, I just said, it "Says right there, my God is a jealous God. Why are you trying to sell moral perfection on us?" <laughs> uh, so, yeah, okay. Uh, but notice that, but but notice that's a cost benefit too. You, sure. You, you know, yes. Moral perfection entails a lot of difficulties, but you lose some things as well. So. Right, right. Well, one of the biggest issues for me with regards to Christianity in particular was the idea of an eternal. And I know not all Christians hold to the same idea, but you know, it seems to be the uh, I wouldn't say popular view, but the more um, common view that there is an eternal conscious hell. And and to me, that seems irreconcilable with a perfectly good God that uh, any sort of theism that posits both of those things um, just can't possibly be true. Um, w- would you say you agree with that, or what are your thoughts there? So let me, let me work backwards. Uh, there's, there, there's definitely a very high tension, mm-hmm. uh, and so you have to look at the, the Christian explanation for that eternal damnation, which is, uh, again, I'm using Christian deliberately there because they seem to be the only ones with this really firm sense. Perhaps they belong to better than marriage. Mm-hmm. But you know, if, if they they talk about this infinite sin of somehow turning away from Jesus or this fundamental break uh, between God created and creation, so the question is, do I think those are coherent? Uh, is ultimately going to be my answer about whether whether hell is compatible with an infinite good being or not? Because theoretically, infinite punishment uh, punishment for infinite crime has some notion of justice built into it. Uh, but the problem is I just do not think that those can constitute infinite crimes in the sense that it would merit right. infinite damnation. Right. Right. So they, they'd have some work to do as far as establishing that there is some kind of infinite crime that has been committed. Yeah. And, well, and not only that, but infinite crime in the sense that it merits infinite punishment, which right. that's a harder sell too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. No, I appreciate that distinction, and that's that is helpful. And I, yeah, I would agree with that. What, what do you make of you know, in terms of defending then you know, uh, 
a, uh, a revealed text, say like the Bible. So I, again, again, not to pick on Christianity, but like you said, it's sort of the most pertinent one that we deal with here. I know a lot of Christians put, at least the ones I come across, again, more at the lay level, um, it's probably very different in the you know professional literature, but a lot of Christians seem to rely on arguments like uh, uh, from prophecy, you know, so that, that's like a really popular one that I see a lot. What, what do you make of, I mean, in particular, they seem to claim, you know, the pro, or the Bible itself has, is the most, but not, not any other book comes close to making like the sort of prophecies that uh, the Bible does. And so that seems to be a particularly strong selling point for them. How would you respond to that? There's kind of three, I think, important responses to it. If if you're dealing with uh, one, is, is there there's an issue of value mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you make enough prophecies and some will come true, <laughs> and so uh, what you really have to do is make sure to look at all the prophecies, or else you're just cherry picking, and right. anybody can do that. Product. Anybody can have 50 prophecies come true if they make 700 of them. Um, So that's thing one. And I think if you broaden the scope and actually look at all the biblical prophecies, uh, it it turns out pretty bad. So uh, for Christianity specifically, Jesus is just a terrible fit for the prophecies about Messiah that are contained in the Tanakh. I talked about that in some of the book. Uh, But then Jesus himself is a terrible prophet. Which is kind of funny, and so uh, I think the I think the latter is kind of the more offensive one in the sense of well, now the Christians in a dilemma because either uh, Jesus made some false prophecies, or we have to somehow interpret it away. The problems with the former are manifest if you're saying Jesus is God in some way, uh, or if this or if we should marry his words. Uh, but then if we're interpreting it away. It's just uh, the prophecies become kind of meaningless that, well, uh, everything can turn out to be a true prophecy if you massage it enough. So uh, let, let, let's start just, just as an example of kind of what I'm talking about is Jesus keeps talking about being dead for three days. And last time I counted, it was a day and a half. <laughs> and so the, the question is, well, what, what are you going to do with that information? If you say, oh, well, he was on three different calendar days, and uh, I mean, you can make a consistent story there. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of whether it retains its potency. And then there's ones that just you really have to get creative. So Jesus right. talked about his second coming would be when all but the youngest of you would uh, have already died, which seems to imply it should have happened you know, roughly 1,900 years ago, and it didn't. So mm-hmm. what's our other option there? Imagine there's some some immortal apostle wandering around, and therefore the prophecy is not false. And, and like, one, once you once you take off the blinders, once you start focusing on all of the prophecies, there's just, this problem is systemic. It's, it's all over the place. Uh, think of uh, all the stuff in the... Uh, and, and then there's... Sorry, I need to trail off there. Uh, but, but then there's context stuff as well. One, uh, some of these prophecies are really amazing until you realize they were actually written after the events happened. You're like, oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's not a hard prophecy at all. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and then some of them are, are, you know, we have to, we should be interpreting in context. For instance, uh, the book of Revelation is thought to be 
you know, all these prophecies about the end of the world, but really a lot of it was actually about stuff that was contemporary and going on uh, during Roman Empire times. And the horror of Babylon is, was a, kind of a Christian nickname for Rome. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, well, do we read these literally or do we try to read them in context? Um, and, and those present some significant difficulties too. Yeah. But, yeah, the refutations are out there. If you just quickly Google, you know, false biblical prophecies, you'll get you'll get, <laughs> you'll get a quite a more impressive list than is in my book. Right, right. Well, no, I thought you, I thought you did a good job though, uh, uh, bringing up some interesting ones that uh, and highlighting some ones that were really important. So, yeah, I, I, and, and, and that's what I try to do. I try to try to get the ones that are the most important but the least well known. Sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we've gone through a significant portion of your uh, book here, um, and just f- for the sake of time, you know, because you've been very generous, and uh, again, we appreciate that. Are there any particular sections that you would like to talk about uh, further? So, you've you've talked about, or you have the section on miracles and some challenges to religious experiences, um, moral critiques of religion. Uh, you address personal survival and afterlife. We've kind of been talking about Christianity as we've gone, so, but you do have a, a section on the case against Christianity and then um, a couple other ones. Are, are there any particular that you would like to uh, finish up on? Or I, I think that uh, some of the responses, I mean, they're general responses, of course, but I think they're uh, involving religious experience and miracles. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I, I, I think that they're fruitful because they tend to be going on in the backs of people's heads, but uh, they're often not articulated in the right ways uh, to get some uh, strange results. And this just has to do with, you know, very generally, you know, we have we have a naturalistic preference and explanation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to recognize that that's, that's something that theists and atheists and everything in between tend to agree on mm-hmm. uh, that when there's a natural explanation available, uh, we ought to uh, endorse that explanation uh, unless there's some overriding condition. So uh, a simple example I gave is I flip a switch in my, and a light turns on. We have nat- you, for any action, we can either explain it naturally or supernaturally. But clearly, there's uh, unless there's overriding conditions, we prefer the naturalistic explanation, and rightly so. And again, that's true for theists and atheists alike. I don't posit a miracle that happened between me flipping the light switch and it turning on, uh, at least in the relevant sense of miracle. Uh, and so I, th- I think that when we talk a little more deeply, we can and we should have this prefer preference for naturalistic explanation but as soon as we realize that and combine it with one other thing there's some really interesting results so when we combine that with the problem of the many that well if i am a christian i reject all the miracles of muhammad for instance and then you say okay but how well i explain them naturally uh, maybe Maybe Muhammad was delusional in hearing the voice of Gabriel in the cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as soon as you say that, given what we already talked about, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Mm-hmm. And now I've undercut my own. And we have 
uh, it's a consistent view to say, well, even if I think I witnessed something supernatural, I should have a preference for natural explanations because I've already entered them into my epistemology. You know, we have to grant that seizures can cause hallucinations and, and uh, various things like that. And so we have these defeaters that seemingly can't be ruled out. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to apply to religious experience. But then we're also, we also need to talk about what it would take to actually be convinced that a miracle's supernatural explanation is the correct one. And uh, I, I think there's there's a lot more detail I could go into those two topics, but I really think it's important to draw out that we're not trying to be a jerk here in denying religious experience and the miraculous. That's just how we are. If somebody walks into the room and tells you, hey, I just saw a corpse get resurrected, there's, there's appropriate incredulity there, uh, especially when we know there have been fake resurrections, and I could very easily imagine how somebody might fake one, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then adding, but I actually read about it in a book that is full of errors, doesn't actually add anything, it seems to subtract. But I'm happy to talk about any of that stuff or whatever you wish to talk about still. Yeah, well, given, given that you said we naturally sort of prefer, uh, naturally prefer natural explanations, even on both sides, Nevertheless, I mean, there, there's no shortage, obviously, of miraculous claims from believers of all kinds of religions. Would you say that the sheer amount of claims adds any weight at all to their veracity? And then piggybacking on that, <clears throat> how might skeptics productively engage people who are just absolutely convinced that they've experienced a miracle? So there, there's, there's a couple of things to say about that. I think it's a good question. Uh, I think the sheer number actually takes away rather than adds Okay. for, for kind of human reasons uh, that, well, that means that all of them can't be legitimate. Um, there's contradictory ones, and we don't want all of them to be legitimate. Uh, if I may use kind of a graphic example, um, Albert Fish, you know, has my vote for worst human being of all time. <laughs> that tells you something. Uh, but but at certain times when he was eating the bodies of children he had murdered, he thought he was having this close communing experience with Jesus. Hmm. And if I'm talking to a theist and says, yeah, that probably was, I'm, I'm just going to back away slowly. Uh, however, <laughs> uh, hopefully the reasonable theist will say, well, of course. I mean, he had seven or eight different documented uh, insanities. And of course that was not voracious. Mm -hmm. um, now we're going to start getting somewhere, mm -hmm. but now we have to talk about the list of all the miracles we want to reject. So we want to reject the hucksters. We want to reject the ignorant. Um, we want to reject the crazy. And once you start doing that, uh, you're going to have some real trouble because the, the level of credulity you use uh, has to be consistent. And if I raise my credulity to reject all the purported miracles of Hare Krishnaism in a way that I don't raise them for purported Christian miracles, then I'm just inconsistent thinking. But instead, I think that once we set our bar of credulity by rejecting all the ones we want to reject, there's just a very, very short list, if any, left. Now, here's the interesting second part. Suppose, uh, oh, and then, and then, of course, there's the ones that we seemingly can't have defeaters for, such as 
uh, singular, I mentioned in the book, there's singular epileptic fits um, that can cause hallucinations. And maybe somebody has one once in their life and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, suppose even, uh, I'm not sure how you can eliminate certain causes of hallucination, but assuming you could, mm-hmm. and assuming you're a theist talking to an atheist, it's a perfectly reasonable position. And I think it's the, the position you should take is to say something like, I know my miracle was genuine, but I have no reason to think it should convince you. You know, evidence is like that. Evidence is asymmetric. There's, you know, stepping out of the God debates for a minute, there's there's tons of reasons uh, and situations where uh, I have a good reason to believe something, uh, but but due to the personal nature of evidence and history and memory, I can't convince you of it. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing wrong with that kind of response. And I think that Hume was right in granting it's at least theoretically possible that there are miracles, but it's, <laughs> that's consistent with the position that you should never believe testimony that one occurred. It's ultimately Hume's, the Humean conclusion there, and, I, and there, there seems to be something deeply right about that. Would you say that uh, the, the low prior probability of theism gives us additional reasons to doubt miracles occurring? I think I'd have to chop a little with definitions there first. So if we mean by miracle, a violation of the laws of nature, mm-hmm. that's one thing. Whereas if we add that somehow cultivates or supports a, different, uh, a specific religion, that might be a different one. Okay. Uh, and then it also depends on our uh, depiction of a deity. So if I'm really, really convinced in deism, that kind of entails that part of moral perfection is no miracles. Mm-hmm. So that's going to interpret things a little differently. But if we just kind of stick to the stereotypes of, well, if I don't have reason to think that there's any supernatural being, then yes, that should drastically decrease the likelihood of a miracle mm-hmm. as a miracle. That is, as something that is that is actually a violation of the law of nature rather than something unexplained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you say that there's any point at which interpreting some event as a miracle might become the best explanation? Um, and if so, uh, what would it take for uh, that to become the more reasonable position um, rather than, say, holding out for a natural explanation? That's a good question, actually, is one I, I did address in the, in the text. Mm-hmm. But let, let me be clear about my position. I think that there is theoretically places we must grant that and to do anything else we're just being dogmatists mm-hmm. uh, i don't think any purported miracle to date has even come close to these mm-hmm. so i think that we should uh so i already talked about what i called the reasonability requirement that we should posit a natural explanation rather than a supernatural one right. if it's commonly experienced reasonable explanation uh which means we should at minimum only posit a miracle if in the absence of such explanations uh, what would that mean? It would seem to require, I, I think, just just think in terms of if somebody walked in and said they just witnessed a resurrection, what would it take? There would need to be sufficiently skeptical observers, that is, people who are asking the right questions, making sure they're covering all the possibilities, mm-hmm. thinking of alternate explanations, et cetera. And by the way, there's nothing in, in the sense of skeptical observer I'm using, there's nothing that says you have to be a skeptic about religions. Uh, mm-hmm. Catholic Church works pretty hard to debunk miracles, for instance. But just people who would put forth a full and adequate effort to try to uncover a natural explanation. But you would also need, and this is this is a part that people forget sometimes, they can't just be skeptical, they also have to be qualified. Right. 
you have to be sufficiently well versed in whatever the relevant scientific field is to be able to recognize a natural explanation if it were present. So right. uh, if we're talking about purported resurrections, uh, perhaps a doctor who did an autopsy who checked for you know known toxins that put him in a death-like state, etc. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's those. We might also add that the miracle should accomplish something um, because otherwise it's just seems to be weird magic. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, you know, we'd have to have the chain of testimony that brings the account to us is also very highly credible. Mm-hmm. Uh, firsthand witnesses, extremely trustworthy sources, multiple trustworthy sources, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think if you had all of those together, mm-hmm. there would be some reason to believe a miracle. Uh, I, I should probably add, and it would also have to be something that isn't like at the cutting edge of science. Uh, sure. If we don't know whether this certain drug kills you or puts you in a coma, uh-huh. <laughs> it's pretty silly to say that there was a resurrection. Right. Um, so, so it has to be things that are generally well known what the natural explanations are. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but I think if you had all of those things, it could theoretically happen. I just, nothing at a been mildly close to that has ever happened in the world. Right. And kind of going along with that, how would you respond to the charge that atheists simply rule out miracles from the from the start? That seems to be what a lot of people think. Well, I mean, I just very clearly didn't. But uh <laughs> Yeah, no. No, you didn't, but that seems to be what a lot of people think uh is that well, you just don't even allow them to start. So of course you're not going to they kind of just think we're being stubborn, perhaps, and and maybe to an appropriate degree we are, but they mistake that as like, you rule them out from the start. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's there's probably two things to be said about that. Mm-hmm. One, I think that has to do with an old stereotype of kind of a caricature of Hume's uh, anti-miracles argument in part kind of the inquiry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was presented as basically question begging, ruling out the impossibility of miracles, which is, of course, not his argument. But nevertheless, that kind of caricature of arguments against miracles has lived a long, healthy life since since then. So that's just kind of a generative where these kind of things come from as a rule, I think. Yeah. Uh, But I think think probably the important second one is also to remember, you know, prior probabilities here – if you don't have independent reasons to think that there is a deity who fiddles with creation once in a while, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a spectacularly high level of incredulity. Uh, and then maybe it's just apples and oranges. Maybe, uh, maybe the reason that, you know, that, that they're just not recognizing or uh, that, that that's really a significant difference, that their account of miracles is going to have a different prior probability simply because they've already helped themselves to a lot of the points of disagreement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And by the way, that's also one of the reasons for the structure of this book. Well, let's look at miracles, assuming these typical justifications for theism don't work, is going to be a very different case than if they do. Right. Yeah. Let's see, well, would you like to... Uh end on any particular section so um we we do have uh, the religious experience but we've kind of brought that in under the the uh the discussion here on uh, miracles but is there any uh, go ahead yeah i, th- I think there's a there, there's a really important issue of I, that i don't want to lose the forest through the trees on yeah is that when we're talking about theism and mm-hmm. we keep talking about all these different additions to theism mm-hmm 
there's this interesting kind of correspondence with the, the it seems like the more unreasonable assumptions are added to theism, mm-hmm. the more harmful the beliefs become. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I spent a whole chapter kind of talking about one of the most harmful components of religion. And I think that's uh, an important disambiguation that, first of all, on the atheist end, it's just false, just wildly, despicably false that religion only causes harm. Mm-hmm. Um, I still volunteer at some Catholic charity events, for instance. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I think it's important to realize that where do these harmful and pernicious consequences come from? They don't come from bare theism. Uh, they come from these additions like exclusivism that only my religion is able to achieve whatever the religion's ultimate is, and the view that somehow that if you are not of this religion, you are therefore less valuable, and that you can read and ransack the the texts in a certain way to kind of get God's divine approval on whatever you want. Mm -hmm. These are all things that have kind of terrible philosophical pedagogy. There's no good arguments for a lot of these things. Right. But at the same time, that's what causes harm. Mm. And uh, uh, this tells us a couple of things. One, my own personal view, I'm not, the, the reason I get along so well with a lot of theists is because the theists I get along with don't make these harmful and unreasonable additions. And if you want to be a theist who posits a first cause and that that first cause wants us to do good things to one another, great bro hug, right? Uh, that, that, that's that's less interesting to me, even if I don't think the view is well justified. Sure. Uh, I don't think it's wildly irrational, and more importantly, it doesn't cause much harm. By contrast, it's these various additions that, that just do these terrible things, and we're talking literal body counts uh, at their worst. And those are... A, things you don't get with bare theism, and so you can't uh, you can't do this. Oh, cosmological arguments aren't are kind of rational. Therefore, Christianity is true. No, you got you got to do the work at every step, mm-hmm. uh, and you've got to justify your beliefs rationally. And part of being a rational thinker is the higher the consequences, the more certitude you. Need. Uh, and so, if you're going to do something hateful or harmful in the name of your religion, that requires a lot more certainty than A is there but B, that you're going to get out of it. And so I think, you know, I, I really think that reason is the common denominator, that if we just stick ourselves to good reasoning, then we don't have the pernicious consequences of religion. And at the same time, we have better and more refined philosophical approaches to religion. And I am not anti-religious full stop, but as soon as your religion starts causing any sort of harm to anyone but yourself, that's when I'm going to take umbrage and not just in the sense of getting annoyed, but also it's probably coming from something that has very poor reason and supporting it. So I, I wanted to just throw that out there and, and to realize that there's there's a lot there's a lot more at stake. But also when we start talking about degrees and additions, there's there's a whole lot of common ground in terms of what's justifiable philosophically. Right. Right. Well. Just to say again, we really appreciate the time you've given to us here, and we've covered a a lot of your book, Atheism Considered, which I uh, really enjoyed. It's a a very good book. Uh, But before we wrap things up, is there anything that you're putting in the works uh, coming up? Are you uh, planning on writing any other books or working on any particular projects that people could be on the lookout for? 
Um, so I'm currently just doing some cleanup work on some of my miracle account for compared to micro level. Uh, long term, I'm really giving some thought to doing a book on uh, uh, maybe even a, a, an anthology instead of a full author on a, something like the the deadly sins of theism, by which I mean uh, just the, the the what I've been talking about a lot, just these very big picture assumptions that are not shared by a lot of people and therefore kind of prevent a fruitful dialogue from happening sometime, mm-hmm. um, such as, you know, assumptions about causal principles and infinite regresses and applications of S5 and things like that. So that's, that's what I've been kind of toying around with. Yeah. Uh, that would be very interesting, actually. I think um, would touch on a lot of the aspects we talked on today. Are there any uh, uh, final wishes that you would have for, uh, or hopes that you'd have for people to learn from uh, your book that you have out right now? Yeah, um, do the work yourself. Uh, whether you think that you know my book's the best thing since sliced bread or the worst, <laughs> my goal is to is really to try to get people to start talking about how we might think about these things to move forward. That's why each chapter includes a suggested reading list and additional resources that <laughs> include just as many authors that disagree with me as ones who agree. Right, and uh, I really liked your uh, challenging questions at the end too. I thought that was very um, helpful. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good way to organize thought and kind of isolate disagreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Hume is purported to have said, "Truth springs from disagreement among friends," and and I think that's a really helpful way to approach philosophy and religion. It always has been for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did my PhD work at Purdue, and that's that's a great model they use there. And um, yeah, you're you're talking to fellow human beings who have different worldviews than you. You're not talking to uh, people who are wildly irrational. Uh, just because of one belief they have, or, right? Uh, anything like that. So. Right. And then, uh, do you have a website or anything where you have your papers or anything like that? Uh, I think I think I think I try to keep my fill papers pretty accurate. Uh, that's great. Fill papers. All right. Excellent. Yeah. So, if they're interested in uh, any more of your work, that's where they should look. Uh, yeah, that's good. Sorry. I think I, uh, I will. It, it's also a good reminder for me. I should really double check to make sure it's up to date. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on and man, spending a good portion of your day with us. We uh, really appreciate it. And it's been a, a, an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I, I, I hope so. And I hope, I hope the listeners have gotten something out of it as well. Yeah. Uh, but definitely thank you for having me. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed your first uh, interview and hopefully maybe you'll uh, be interested in doing it again sometime. Yeah, sounds good. All right, well, thank you so much and um, have a great rest of your uh, night and we'll hopefully hear from you again. All right, sounds good. All right, thanks, Professor Larkowski. If you enjoyed this interview and more broadly enjoy content of this kind, please subscribe to our channel to see more interviews and other interesting philosophical content. Do philosophy with us by sharing your thoughts in the comments below. We'd also love to get your feedback and any suggestions for future videos. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. And if you'd like to help us continue to provide quality atheological content, please consider becoming a patron of Real Atheology and contributing even just a dollar per video. Sharing our content on social media is also a great way to help us out. The Real Atheology team appreciates its current patrons, with a special thanks to Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kim Kovsky, Jason, Kashi Samarawira, Paul Pinos, Lucas Stewart, 
and Brandon Cleary. Again, thanks for joining us, and until next time.